Good morning. Thank you all for joining us. It's nice to see you all, your smiling faces. Um, today is bittersweet for me. Uh, today is our final week preaching through the book of Acts. We'll be covering the last two chapters. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts 27. That's where we'll be starting, and then we'll just be working our way through the rest of the book. Um, I personally have loved preaching through this book and the push to witness, to speak, to invite, to encourage, and, and just to love people for the gospel. I've, I've personally loved that push that we have felt from this book. And I've been really encouraged seeing all of you actually fulfilling that and doing it, you know, inviting and encouraging and loving people. And so that's just been really good for us as a church, I feel. I do just want to give a quick update for the next couple of months and, you know, where we'll be going. Because um, everyone wants to know, you know, what's next. So starting next week, we'll be doing a three-week series focusing on the resurrection. It'll be an Easter series for three weeks. Looking at 1 Corinthians 15 and, and just what the resurrection is and just proofs of it and evidence and, and the victory of the resurrection. And then with that, each week we'll be hearing testimonies from people within the church talking about how the resurrection has changed them and how it, it can change us, our hearts and our actions. Then after Easter, we'll be doing a, a series on stewardship. And I know as soon as I say stewardship, everyone's like, oh, here comes a, story, here comes a sermon about giving money, and no, that's not it. That'll be a little bit of it, but the reality is, is it's, it's not just about money or how to handle it, but it's truly a series on being a good steward of everything that God has given us, from time to talents to treasures. Everything that we have is from God, and we need to be a good steward of, of all of those things, and so that's what we'll be looking at for a few weeks with that as well. And so that's the next couple of months. Um, as we close, and that, that all, the stewardship series will take us right up to then the summertime. So um, as we close our Acts series, I do just want to point out that as we read through it, and even as we preach through it, it can seem as if this book only covers a few years of the early church. The reality is, though, that the book of Acts covers over 30 years. Just the life of Paul that we have covered in the last 15 chapters has been almost 15 years of his life. We can read these stories about Paul and assume that he's this eloquent, incredible, charismatic leader. Like he's, He must just be an awesome, right? Like he's planted dozens of churches. He's raised up and trained dozens of leaders. He's probably led hundreds, if not thousands of people to Jesus, preaching hundreds of sermons. He even started a school to train up church planters, right? Like, he must be like a, like a Troy Nesbitt, you know, somebody that's just like incredibly charismatic and great communicator with great vision, right? That's what we must assume. Well, the reality is that's not probably true, Rumor is that Paul was rather unimpressive. Zach, who preached for us last week, pointed out from the passages in those, or one, of the past, one, of the, yeah, one of the passages in last week's series, they talked about how the high priest had Paul slapped across the face and then Paul yelled at him. 
And then he apologized. He said, oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. And so the belief is that he was, didn't see very well, and he was possibly even blind. And there are actually lots of other rumors about how Paul might have looked or, or how well he communicated, and all of those rumors are very unflattering, to say the least. In Scripture, we don't have any exact details on, on many of the people, how they look or how well they communicate. There's a few, but for the most part, there just isn't physical characteristic traits that we see in Scripture. I mean, it's just not really that important to the story of the Bible. But in 2 Corinthians, we get a glimpse of what I am talking about. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he's, he's, he's the one writing 2 Corinthians, and he's talking about people in Corinth that are talking about him. So he says in, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he says, For they say, the people, his letters, so Paul's letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. <laughs> That's pretty... Pretty harsh words, right? So in Corinth, we, we know in Corinth that Paul had written this letter, 1 Corinthians, and after he wrote this, some leaders popped up, started, stepped up and started calling themselves super apostles and started criticizing the way Paul talked and he looked. We, we looked at 1 Corinthians last year and went through that, and so we know that that book was very... Uh, condemning at times for some of the activities that the Corinthians were up to. So these super apostles stepped up, and these false apostles, truly they were, they stepped up and they said, oh yeah, he can write these really heavy letters criticizing us, but when he comes here, he's not much to look at, and he doesn't speak very well. Like They just went after that. Now I point all this out because as we look at the next two chapters, we can see that Paul truly is a great leader. And we're going to look at the qualities of a leader that we can see in Paul in these passages. But we need to remember that Paul is not a great leader because of anything other than the Holy Spirit empowering him. I also want to briefly remind you that when we talk about leaders here, I'm not just preaching about qualities of pastors or elders or CEOs. Right? We are all leading someone in some capacity whether it's children or, or coworkers or a peer or even ourselves at time we need to be leading, we are all called to lead in some way. And so these four points that we're looking at today are going to help us to see how to lead people ultimately to Jesus. And so we'll be jumping into chapter 27, but as we start 27, we, we're getting on a boat. And so we need to just remind us, well, why? Why are we starting this chapter jumping on a boat? And so a brief recap from last week. Paul has been in and out of prison for a few years now. He's been escaping assassination attempts, dealing with crooked politicians who want bribes. He's been in and out of trials. And so Paul has thrown down the appeal to Caesar card. Which simply for us is just like saying, I want to take this matter, I want to take this trial to the Supreme Court. He is appealing his case to the highest level of judicial process in that time. And he's allowed to simply because he's a Roman citizen. Paul is walking into possibly one of the most confrontational areas in the known world. 
And Paul will reach the people in this place simply by showing the four characteristics of a leader that I'm going to point out today. We're basically just going to read the passages today where Paul speaks in these two chapters, but I do want to paraphrase the passages around those spots where Paul speaks. So the first eight verses of chapter 27, we simply see the preparation for the journey to Rome and the first few stopping points. It is simply the explanation that they got on this boat here and went to Sidon, and then they got off that boat and Sidon and went to Cyprus and on and on. And it, and it takes them a while because they're, they're on a boat and at the will of the sea and the wind. And so that's the first eight verses there. And then in verse 9 is where I want to start reading. And they've come to a place called Fair Havens. So follow along as I read, starting at verse 9 of chapter 27. It says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So the first thing that we see in these passages is that leaders speak truth. As a prisoner, Paul speaks up and tells them that they shouldn't make the next stage of the journey. He speaks truth. And he does this knowing that it's very possible that they wouldn't listen, right? Because he's a prisoner. What are the chances that these Roman soldiers are going to listen to somebody who's in chains going to Rome to possibly face a death sentence? Who's going to listen to that? But Paul speaks anyway. Paul speaks truth even Leaders speak truth even if they know people won't listen. Well, Paul speaks this truth not just because he's scared. I'm sure there's an element of that. Like he can just look out and see like it's not the appropriate time to be sailing. But that's not the main reason he says that. He tells them what has been revealed to them. There's some sort of divine revelation that Paul is giving them. So he's saying, no, we, we shouldn't go. But he doesn't demand, he doesn't throw a temper tantrum and say, no, I'm not getting on this boat, refusing. He just simply explains the facts. This is what has been revealed. This is what's going on. We shouldn't go. And then in verse 11 and 12, we see that the men in charge don't listen and they set out for the next stop. This helps us to see that we need to realize that sometimes people are willing to take a chance rather than listening to truth. We will encounter people in this world that will hear the gospel message. They will hear it when we speak it to them. They will hear the words about Jesus dying for their sins and, and the cross and the forgiveness that they can find in it. And then the only true hope for eternity is found in Jesus. He is the only way. They will hear the words that we speak and they will not listen to it. They will not accept Jesus because they are more willing to take a chance living a life of sin and pleasure and selfishness here on earth 
into a life of obedience and sacrifice to Jesus. If we hope to lead people like Paul and ultimately like Jesus, we must be willing to speak truth, though. But equally as important, as leaders, we also need to be willing to hear truth. Just this past week, I had a man come into the office to share some concerns with me. Some concerns with the way I speak, the way I receive criticism, and the way I just lead at times. I, I had one of two options in that meeting, and I will tell you, I am usually bent to the first option. I, I could have gotten defensive, right? I could have sat there and said, no, that's not what I meant. You didn't hear me correctly. You're misinterpreting me. And hey, what about your shortcomings? I could have done that. And honestly, I did it first. I started to go down that road. Because like I said, I am just naturally defensive when I get criticism. But then I thought about this passage. And I thought about other messages that I had been that I've been listening to recently, and it was just kind of like while he's speaking and, and God working in my heart and just remembering this, all these things that I've heard, I realized he was right. I do speak brashly at times, and I do hold on to past hurts, and I let them grow seeds of bitterness in my heart. And I take those those roots of bitterness that are growing in me, and I start superimposing them on other people. Like somebody hurt me over here, and you remind me of them a little bit, and I start to put it on them. And I do speak poorly about certain groups of people. And none of those things are okay. It's not okay. I am so thankful that that man pointed these out to me. I want to be constantly growing as a leader, growing more in Christ's likeness. And it is only through honest evaluation of myself that I can grow to the leader that God has want, is intended for me. I also want to say to anyone here, if I have ever done any of those things to you, said something that hurt you, or gotten defensive about a concern you've shared, I'm truly sorry. I, I'm trying to work on the crud in my life, and I'm, and I'm trying and so I'm sorry if I've done that to you. Many times people around us can see the glaring issues that we let slip under the radar. Right? Because we're, we're just used to the way that we talk. We're, we're used to these certain sin issues in our lives, uh, and we just don't really want to deal with them. So we just kind of let them slide under the radar. But the people around us, the people that are closest to us, they can see them. And so if, if that's you, if you see the issue in, in somebody that you love and you care about, as a leader, you need to speak truth into that situation. But the opposite is true as well. If, as a leader, when somebody who you love and care about comes to you and says, hey, I've noticed this and, and I, I'm concerned for you, we need to be willing to hear that truth. To have a, a posture of humility and say, you know what, maybe you're right. Let me, let me look at myself. Leaders speak truth and hear truth. 
The next section I'm going to read is in verses 21 through 26. Before those verses, we can see exactly what Paul told the men would happen. A big storm comes while the ship is sailing to Crete, and it starts throwing the ship all around. It even knocks him off course, and the men on the boat are trying to figure out what to do. And so they start reinforcing the ship by running ropes or cables underneath it and strapping them to their side. It's like they're literally just trying to tie the boat together to help it from not falling apart. And then it gets so crazy that they start throwing cargo overboard because they have obviously taken on water. And it just turns out that boats aren't designed to carry a bunch of people, a bunch of cargo, and be filled with water. It's going to sink. And they can't get the water out fast enough, so they have to start throwing cargo overboard just to lighten the load. Verse 20 tells us the story is so bad that these experienced sailors didn't even know where they were anymore. So follow along as I read what Paul says, starting at verse 21. He says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. What we can see in this passage is that leaders show courage. Leaders show courage. In verse 22, Paul reminds them what he had told them before, right? Men, you should have listened to me. Again, this, he's being graceful in his explanation. It seems sarcastic, and I like to read it a little sarcastically, but the reality is he's just trying to remind them that God had already revealed this to him. He's just saying, this is, this is exactly what I told you was going to happen, and now it's happening. And this is actually going to help a lot because now the sailors and the soldiers are going to start listening to Paul because they realize that he's got some insight. In the midst of everyone freaking out, Paul remains calm. This is not a courage that comes from Paul. Verse 23 and 24 shows us that, again, Paul is only courageous because he's letting the Holy Spirit lead him, guide him to speak through him. If we hope to show this kind of courage in the midst of difficult times, we must be praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us. The courage that Paul offers is not just some simple lame answer, right? Like when it feels like your whole world is falling apart and everything seems out of control and you're just in the midst of the storm and somebody comes to you and says, it's okay, God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true, and it is not helpful. Paul does not say that here. He's actually super honest. He says things are going to get worse. This ship is going to run aground on some island. Running aground is not good. It breaks ships. And some island, clearly, Paul doesn't even know where they're going to be when they land. They're probably, none of them are going to end up knowing where they are when they land. It's not going to be on course. But the hope is that no one is going to die at sea. That is the hope that Paul gives. So he says, buckle up, we're heading for a shipwreck. Verse 25, 
is really great. I, I love what Paul says to these men. He says it over in verse 22 also. He says it twice. He says, take courage. Or he says, take heart. Other translations for this do say, they say, take courage. Take heart. The original Greek word that is used here for take heart, it carries the meaning to gladden or to cheer up or to make joyful. I think about the idea that these men are about to get in a shipwreck, and I don't see a lot of joy in that. Right? Cheer up. We're going to wreck this ship. We're going to lose all the cargo. Be joyful. Right? That doesn't seem very cheerful or joyful. When we hear the term joyful, a lot of people just automatically think that that means happy. But there is a big difference between joyful and happy. Happy is an emotion that is tied to temporary positions or stuff. Joyful is something that transcends what is currently going on around us. Happy is happy about a position or, or a bonus or, or the new iPhone. Like, that's happiness, but it all can be taken away. Joy is something that can't be taken from us. Paul has often showed this type of joy in the midst of trials and difficulties, and that is what we are called to do, to be joyful, show courage in the midst of temporary struggles, or as Paul calls them once, he calls them light momentary afflictions. He refers to his difficulties, his prison sentences, his beatings, the shipwrecks. He refers to those things as light momentary afflictions. I know that many of you are going through difficult times, some worse than others. And I know some of you are going through difficult times that I just don't know about. And I know in the midst of it, you say, you know, it doesn't feel like this is a light momentary affliction. It feels like I'm just never going to get away from this, like I can never be released from this. But we are called to have joy, to take heart in the midst of that, in the midst of a light he, Paul can say that these things are a light momentary affliction because he's not just looking at it in the sense of today. He's looking at it in the reality of eternity. And the reality of turn, eternity, our difficulties, no matter how long we've been struggling with them, they are a momentary affliction. As followers of Jesus and leaders within our families, within church community and jobs. We are called to be filled with a joy that can only come from Jesus. That is where this courage and this hope comes from. It only comes from running to the cross, praying to Jesus, begging him to just help you through it. It doesn't mean he's going to take it away. It just means that he's going to be there with you. You've got to cling to the cross in the midst of the difficulties. That is what we are called to do. A joy in the good times and the bad. A joy that can cause people to look at us and say, you know, I know what you're going through. I know the struggle that you're feeling, the difficulties. I don't know how you're going through this. I don't know how you can have a joy in this. Like, you just seem okay through this. I, I couldn't handle that. It causes people to look at us and say, you know, I don't, I don't know how you can get through this, but I want whatever it is that you have. 
This church is built on courageous men and women. Not just, not just Stonebridge Church either, but I, as I was coming into church, I went and grabbed a book for one of the ladies in, in the church that is a book about the history of this property and the church that was here before and Crawford Hall and everything. All of that was built on courageous men and women. But even just this church, Stonebridge Church, was built on courageous men and women, men and women who left the comforts of a large, thriving church to plant this, men and women who have sacrificed, prayed, and served tirelessly because they saw that it was worth it. Through the BLESS campaign, we will only be able to continue to reach the next generation and boon with courage and joy. Take heart. It will be tough at times, but it is so worth it. We're going to jump ahead to verse 31 to see our next leadership quality in Paul. But before we get there, the five verses in between just tell more of the story of preparing for the shipwreck, which I will say I am giving the Cliff Notes versions of these stories, but they are great. And you all need to go back and read through them. Or, or for those of you who can multitask, read through them now while you're listening to me. These are incredible factual stories about the accounts of what happened to these men. Follow along as, as I read from Acts, starting at verse 31. It says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Because some of the men started trying to get off of the ship. So he said, they've got to stay. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of you, of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged. And ate some food themselves. The quality that we can see in these verses is that leaders take action. Some of the men were trying to jump off the, the, the ship and swim ashore or, or even try and take a, a type of life raft uh, and get away. And Paul sees a need and he moves. First, he knows that God has revealed that everyone must stay on this boat. Now maybe that's because God knows that they need all hands on deck to weather the storm, to get through the shipwreck. It's going to take everyone working to do this. Maybe that's why, or maybe it's just because if the storm is so bad that it's trying to tear this large boat apart, clearly a small boat is a worse choice, and swimming is an even worse choice. So Paul speaks up, and he says, no, we must all stay on the boat, and then he does something even a little bit more crazy. He says, let's sit down and let's have a meal. I'm going to pray and we're going to eat. Now that actually does seem smart because verse 33 says that it's been 14 days since they had been in this storm and no one was eating. This is probably because they were rationing, but it's also possibly just because they were so preoccupied with keeping the boat together that they forgot to eat. But the crazy part about this is that the storm is still raging. It's still going on. They still don't know for sure if they're going to weather through it. But Paul sees that there is a need to eat. 
to get strength back up and to pray to keep people from making stupid decisions like jumping off the boat in the middle of a storm. So as a leader, he takes action. What needs do you see? Maybe within the church, maybe within your family, maybe you see needs in your neighborhood or the community as a whole. Take action. As leaders, we need to take action, not just expect someone else to do it, right? That's so often our mentality. Like we see something like, oh, somebody should do something about that. Oh, I just don't have time for it. Or I'm sure somebody else will take care of it, not me. No. If you see the need, do something about it. When I was preparing this message and I thought of this idea of taking action, I thought of our women's ministry team. Some women in the church saw a need. A need for women to be encouraged, to learn to give their testimonies, to worship together, and to hear the gospel. So they did something. They took action. And two weeks ago, this church had 55 women in here, some from the church and some from the community. Those 55 women heard how to give their testimony. They heard they were worship, they worshiped together, they were encouraged, and they heard the gospel because someone took action. And the best part about it, Matt and I had nothing to do with that. Not just because, like, oh, we didn't have we didn't have to do any of the planning, the organizing. No, I mean that's nice too. But what the great part is, is that these women saw a need and they did everything on their own. They saw a need and they took action. And that is our hope for all of you. If you see a need, do something. Take action action. What needs do you see? Take action. For our final leadership quality, we're going to jump all the way to chapter 28, verse 17. But again, in between 2736 and 2817, there are some amazing accounts of what happens to Paul and these men. As predicted, the ship runs aground and everyone lives, although there is one point where the Roman soldiers plan to kill all the prisoners. This is because they know that if any of them escape, it will be their neck on the line. So it's just easier to kill these prisoners than try and keep track of them through a shipwreck. But because of the centurion's appreciation of Paul, he doesn't want Paul to be killed. He speaks up and he tells them not to kill anyone. Then at the beginning of chapter 28, we find out that they have landed on an island named Malta. There are some natives there, and they, they help them, the natives do, and get them pointed in the right direction. And then there's this story of Paul getting bitten by a poisonous snake, and he just kind of shakes it off into the fire. And then he heals a bunch of sick people. You know, just the norm for Paul and his team, poisonous snake bites and healing dozens of people. You know, just a Monday for the team. Then there's another boat trip with a few different stops. And finally, after five years since Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, we see in verse 16, he finally gets to Rome. He meets with some local believers, some local Christian believers, and then he invites the Jewish leaders to come to the place that he is staying and to meet with him. These are potentially the people that are going to be opposing him. He invites them to come and meet with him. And so follow along as I read our final section for today, verses 17 through 22, as Paul speaks to these people who would possibly be opposing him. 
It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, it was compelled to, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against Paul does what Paul has always done. In spite of shipwrecks, prison sentences, beatings, trials, plots to kill him, Paul tells his story. And this shows us that leaders witness. We have definitely talked a lot about witnessing and, and sharing our God stories over the past six months, but it's just a reminder that Paul has been doing it now for over 30 years years. He doesn't stop. He understands that his testimony or that his God story, that it's important. There are definitely some personal aspects of his story and some things that he's just not really proud of, but that doesn't mean that it's confidential. Our stories are, are personal. They're not confidential. He is doing the very thing that he is on trial for doing, sharing his belief, but that doesn't stop him. Just because he's on trial for it, he still keeps sharing his story. He will witness all the way to his death. And I love this line in verse 20. Right? And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, how Paul would often tailor the way he talks to certain groups of people. You know, he uses the line, to the Jew, I became the Jew. To the slave, I became a slave. He does that, and we see it right here in verse 20. He says, it is because of the hope of Israel I am wearing this chain. I love that. Because he could have just said, I'm on trial, I'm in prison because of Jesus. But he knew that just the very name of Jesus could be offensive to these Jewish believers. So he's reminding them, the reason I'm here is because of the hope. It is something that I share with you. I am an Israelite too. This is something we have in common. And this is why I'm on trial. The hope that we have been waiting for for thousands of years. And he doesn't just witness to the people around him. He'll be here for a couple of years. But while he's here, he writes the prison, what we now call the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Some of the books of the Bible that are the strongest and the most helpful when talking about identity and spiritual warfare and marriage and being joyful and who Jesus is. Some of the strongest books in the New Testament he just wrote while he was in prison and sent them out to encourage people back in the churches that he had planted. And when you go home later and read the end of this chapter, some of you are going to walk away thinking this is very anticlimactic. Because the rest of this chapter, it just tells how Paul keeps witnessing to anyone who will listen to him. It doesn't tell us what happens when Paul goes to trial with Caesar. 
It doesn't tell us if Paul is set free or killed. Nothing. It doesn't say any of that. Verse 30 and 31, the ending of, our, of the book of Acts, it simply says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. That's how the story ends. But wait, what happens, right? I, I want to know what happens. Well, there are church history books that have theories and, and some proof that can give us ideas about what happens. But the truth is, we don't know for sure what happens after this point, what happens in this trial. But that's because it doesn't matter what happens in the trial, and it doesn't matter when Paul dies, because that's not the story. It doesn't matter for the story of God. What does matter is that the story doesn't end here. Right? My Bible has a mostly blank page here. And I will tell you what happens here. What happens is that the gospel continues to spread across the known world for almost 2,000 years until today. What could be on this blank page is my story or your story or that super confrontational uncle that you always have to bump into at Christmas and he criticizes you for your beliefs. Maybe his story is on this page because the gospel doesn't end. And although we are finishing our series on witnessing in the book of Acts, that does not mean that we have completed the mission from page one, right? The whole series we've been saying, you will be my witnesses. That mission does not end just because we end the book of Acts. I love the quote that Zach shared last week. He said, the gospel came to you because it was headed to somebody else. That is what happened after Acts 28. The gospel continued being shared until it came to you, and it will continue being shared until Jesus returns. The gospel continues. The story doesn't end. The same is true for our church. The story will continue as long as we, as a church, speak truth. As long as we take courage, take action, and we never stop witnessing. I'm excited to see how God is going to use this church to reach the community. And the next stage of that begins today as we pass the plate or, or the bucket for the first time ever. I know that many of you have been praying about this over the past month. We know that we are asking you to pray big and to take a leap of faith. We are asking you to believe that our elders and that Matt and I are men of God, humbly submitting to his will and asking you to do the same. We are asking you to submit to our leadership in a bold way as we move forward with the BLESS campaign. You have already shown what obedience through giving looks like. My very job at Stonebridge is fruit of that, the remodel that we did last year, so much of it is just a fruit of your obedience through giving. But what about serving? Right? We ask you to serve a service and attend a service. Why? Because we have children and new people, new families, every single week in this church. Every single week we have new people. God has put us, Matt and I, in a position to lead you into unknown territory. We don't know for sure what's next. We don't know the next chapter of the story. But what is unknown to us is not to God. He is sovereign, and this is his plan. 
leading you as pastors of this church is not something that we take lightly. It is through prayer, fasting, and devotion that we lead. Just like Paul, we are ready to lead you through this blessed campaign and beyond. Trust God. Trust us. Let's go.